Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee. This is the Autosport Podcast. Well, today we are here to talk about what many regard as the world's greatest sports car and some say the greatest motor racing car to ever exist. The Porsche 956 962 and I'm joined by two of the world's experts on this subject to tell you exactly why this is the world's greatest sports car. First of all, our authority on all things sports cars, Gary Watkins. Welcome back to the Autosport Podcast. Good to have you here at the the, Silver, the classic at Silverstone. And we can hopefully hear some cars in the background. Well, I hope you can hear me over the uh, bark of the uh, Cosworth DFV. There's a bit of a demo going on as we speak. But if I go a bit distant, that's because I'm uh, gazing out of the window looking at some marvellous racing cars. And when we knew there was going to be a fantastic collection of 956s and 962s here at the classic, uh, you said, well, we have to make a podcast and talk about why this is the greatest. And you said, I've got just the man in mind. If you'll introduce our, our guest, please. Serge Van Bokrik. I'm going to say the world's leading authority on the 956 and the 962 Porsche. Uh, he's just written another book. He's going to talk about that a bit later. But uh, he's from Belgium. He's come over here to the Silverstone Classic for the launch of one of his books. Welcome, Serge. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Good morning, I was allowed to say. You are allowed to say good morning. You're a fan of British. You grew up with British TV, so you have a, a, a British sense of humour. Well, I had a choice between Belgian TV and BBC, so that choice was easily made, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can say good morning, good morning. All, all, you, all you like. Um, I so fan- this only once. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, a debate that some people have about the greatest 
racing car of all time, but some say it's not up for debate. Why? And for many of our lighter listeners that just are interested in motorsport, I would say to them, cast your memory banks back. Think Le Mans, think Rothman's liveries, and that's the car that you're probably thinking of right now is the one we're talking about today. Why is this the greatest sports car of all time? Well, I think it's the success of the car. It's the longevity of the car. And I think it's the effect... Uh, that it had on the sports car racing scene, both in Europe in the World Championship and in uh, IMSA in North America, uh, that it just provided the bedrock of the grid for both series. And then I'm going to add, throw into that series in Japan, sort of minor league series like Interserie and Super Cup in Europe. And it was just so important in providing a big proportion of the grid for all those series it just had an importance on many many different levels for me a car uh, that lasted many many longer than pretty much anything else that was still going to the very top of the podium well yeah it lasted for 12 years i mean between his first victory at le mans in 82 and his last in 94 it was 12 years it was basically the same car which tweaked and tuned to the the going regulations but that's it's it's amazing i mean these days you can you can barely build a car that will last 12 months mm. So it was absolutely amazing, the longevity of the car and, and the success it kept on having for those 12 years. And so from 956, which was quite short-lived to 962, is it one car? Is it two cars? Is it an ev- evolution of a car? Because it's the same car. It's basically the same car. It was just the uh, the wheelbase that was lengthened a bit. And I think they gave it a different number just to, to give it a different number so they could sell it in, uh, in America. Because the 956 was not allowed under IMSA rule. Why is that? The pedals sat in front of the front wheel axle, and that was considered a safety issue. So, which it is. Which it was. <laughs> um, and then the, the, the easiest thing, it was very clever thinking by, by Norbert Zinger, and, and the easiest and most cost-effective thing was to bring the, the front wheel axle forward rather than rebuild a whole new car, redesign a whole new car. It's a car the driver sits very far forward in the car, yeah. so rather than move the driver and redesign the car, it was simply a case of, well, we'll just move the axle and come within the letter of the law at IMSA. Which is why we should uh, regard it as one car, <laughs> okay, and not as two cars. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's just yeah. it's it's an evolution, yeah. as as you know, as it continued evolving all through its life. Don't forget that when it had its final win in uh, 1994, it was a GT car, not mm. a prototype, uh, a GT car of sorts, a bit of a rule road homologated yeah. GT car, a bit of a row uh, rule twister as the, as as a car that's correctly called the Dower 962 LM Porsche. Um, and then don't forget that it continued racing even beyond that, mostly in open top form or predominantly in open top form in other series, uh, normally uh, a, in, with cars developed by Kramer. The K8 was their sort of best known open top version, continued racing through into 98, the last year it went to Le Mans. So there was a Porsche 956-962 at Le Mans every year. From, For 17 years. Yeah. And I mean, we, uh, phenomenal. And when we say dominant, how dominant? Extremely dominant. I mean, it won Le Mans seven times, six times in a row, and it could have won probably nine times at Le Mans. Overall winner. Overall. Top step, second, third. Yeah, usually. <laughs> like one year they had to hold top 10 by one card. It sneaked in in ninth position, had his famous poster saying, nobody is perfect, and congratulating the guy who finished ninth with a non-Porsche. <laughs> which was actually a Sauber, which interestingly. Is, which is quite a flex, isn't it? When yeah. you say, hey, congratulations, number nine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
you infiltrated us. So and and so there's the longevity of the car we'll talk about. There's the success that it had, and also probably the caliber of driver. It was a, of an era when a lot of Formula One well-known drivers would end up driving cars yep. like this as well. Absolutely. Plus, you had quite a few drivers made their career with the 962. Um, or, and the 956, and you had XF1 drivers who like who had a career in a bit of a in a bit of a rut, like Jack Yeeks had done F1 until '79 and was he was still driving for Porsche, but he wasn't doing much. But Porsche wasn't doing much before Group C happened. Same with Derek Bell, he drove a 924 uh, Porsche at, at Le Mans in 1980, then was called back in 1981 and won it, and then his career really took off for the larger audience at least uh, from from the Group C and IMSA days with the 956 and the 962. Derek Bell told us that uh, very recently in, in the pages of Autosport that it was the 956, 962 that made his career, you know, and he didn't get in it until he was nigh on 40. Yeah, exactly. And then the final, I guess, piece of the jigsaw in my mind that I would present as a case of why this is the greatest racing car of all time is simply how many they made, both as a works team, but we'll get on to customer cars later. But that is a really crucial part of the story, that this wasn't a limited run. There was how many in total? A hundred and... Over 220 in total. Made by Porsche, but also by subcontractors and by, by privateer constructors who made their own chassis and were allowed to call them Porsche because they were basically clone uh, monocoques but used the running gear of a Porsche. So it's over 220 cars that were built in that 12-year span. And that's more than anybody else, of course, ever produced. But it's always been Porsche's motto if you like they build a race car run it by the works team and then they offer it for sale to customer teams that's what they're doing now with the new 963 for the lmdh uh, programs which starts next year they'll have the works team but they also have privateer teams it's also their business model none of the other groups the uh, manufacturers involved had that well that's our pitch for why this is the greatest but let's tell the story of how this car came about what was the world like that it entered into this is the early 1980s right what was sports car racing like at the time well it's, it's the world it replaced okay group c started was introduced for 1982 porsche signed up for it in the summer of the previous year the go-ahead was given in the summer so why was group c first of all why did that come about what was the uh, uh, the brainchild of jean marie balleste FISA president at the time and he's the people he he worked with groups A, B and C replaced groups 1 through 6 group C was the new fuel formula a very clever formula I think that just enabled it opened the doors on sports car racing because it enabled people manufacturers with different engines to come and play because it wasn't saying we're going to restrict your revs we're going to restrict the the uh, air you breathe it was saying you get this amount of fuel you make the most of it over the course of the race and so we just saw lots of different engines porsche had their flat six jaguar when it came came with a v12 but a road-based v12 a massive engine mercedes had a v8 turbo we saw all, all manner of uh, different engines and that that was what Serge, that was it, what was it, key it, to the success absolutely. of group six the six. regulations were simple i mean bop didn't even exist yet which is which is good I think BOP is nonsense, but uh, it was simple. The the rule, the aero rules were simple. The chassis rules were simple. It was it was easy to understand. It was easy to build. And the simplest rule was, of course, you can run whatever you want, 
but here's your fuel and that's the amount of fuel you have to do it with it was for the thousand kilometer race at the time it was 51 liters and that's it here's your big your huge jerry can of fuel that's what you get for the race if you run out tough shit and and it and that immediately took away an expensive cost like over of overdeveloping the extremely powerful engines now the engineers at the at the plants at the manufacturers had to develop an engine that was lean on, on, on gas basically you had to make a few, an economic engine rather than a very powerful engine that's why in the beginning cars sometimes were see, seen as, as going slow at the, at the beginning of the race in the early years was because they didn't know how, how they were going to come out with fuel so, which was the problem here at Silverstone exactly in 1982 on the 956's debut it set full position I think by what two and a half seconds something, or something? like that yeah. but then it only it, 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 it trundled round and was beaten because by a quirk of the rules it had to try and do a six hour race on a thousand kilometres uh, worth of fuel and at a fast circuit like Silverstone, a very like fast circuit yeah. like the old Silverstone, you know, think of old Beckett's Maggots and Stowe and Club, you know. So it, it, it was basically um, Jackie Ix and Derek Bell were sort of driving around off throttle, probably <laughs> in top gear for uh, for. Well, two yeah, I think they only used fifth gear except for the, the, the five times they had to pit. That's because amazing. they knew from the beginning they were never going to be able to sustain the pace of the Lanciers and, and, and make it home. Wow. And just just explain, the Lanciers were a bit of a, another car coming through a loophole. They were two-litre Group 6 cars that had been built new for the... Uh, for that season, for the to yeah. chase the drivers' championship, couldn't chase the manufacturers' championship because they were Group Six cars, and only under two litre Group Six cars were, were grandfathered for that. Yeah, for that but one they year. built a new one, which wasn't the intention of the rules, and you know it was a little one point four turbo, so it was quite a, a good little car. Did well. Only uh, weighed like six hundred kilos or something. Yeah, developed by Delara, and so it was. I wouldn't want to call it a cheat, but it was a, <laughs> a, a, a rule bender. Yeah, and then what was it like? in terms of racing at Porsche so they were racing in Le Mans at the time not in the top class they weren't winning overall so what's that what's that conversation happening around the boardroom at Porsche then to to green light this project because then it, after that it happened really quickly right basically I think that the instigator of it all was was Peter W. Schutz who was the American who became the CEO of Porsche at the beginning of, uh, of 81 and it took over from Ernst Foreman and in those years the group five four five six years um, sports car racing in general was was at a dead end it hadn't had a success that, that the, the, the rule makers had planned when they, when they started the class in 1976. Only Porsche did like a proper factory team. BMW gave it a try. So did Ford, I think. Yeah, but, 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 but were short-lived, yeah, essentially. Exactly. So at the end, I mean, even, even after 19, Le Mans, well, Silverstone Le Mans 78, Porsche pulled out and left it to the customer teams to run 935s. And obviously they won. Then Lancia came in for two years, 80-81, with Tibet and Monte Carlo. They were the only factory team in the whole series. They ran in the under two liter class, won that because there was no competition. So they won the last two world titles. And then Schutz came in at the beginning of 81 and he said, Oh, are we going to Lamar? Yeah, we're going to Lamar. And what are we running there? We're running 924s, front engine. Uh, no, 924s. Or 924s. Yeah, still. the GTR. So we're not going to win Le Mans. Yeah. They were class content going yeah, yeah, we're class, class, And we'll yeah, show yeah. up and we'll. You know, but, and yeah. So, so he, effectively, Porsche was saying, Well, let's go big or go home. Let's either do it well, and win yeah. or let's not do it at all. And then Schutz said, Well, 
we're not going to Lamar to win a class. We're going to Lamar to win overall. Can we right. win overall? Yeah. And then Norbert Zinger, who always has the brightest idea at, at crucial times, he said, well, we've got the 936 sitting on the tops in the museum or somewhere in the, in the basement. Right. We've got the engine from the aborted IndyCar project from 1980. Let's make two tours together, and then we might have a winning car. So they did that. Use the old 936, which was allowed in just for the one year in Lamar again, with an unrestricted engine in Group 6, put in the old Indy engine, and they won Lamar outright, Jackie X and Derek Bell. And then, of course, Group C happened as a, as a new uh, prototype formula, and then Schutzel said, well, we have to be in there as well. Uh, and that's the amazing part of this story, is the development time, and just how such a crucial part of the of, of the. This, this whole story about why it is so great. They didn't spend two, three years in wind tunnels and development. From the board signing it off to Shakedown, Gary, like that was really well, quick. Well, we're talking from the summer to the spring. So it yeah. basically given the go-ahead after Le Mans in 81. Uh, and I'm going to say that it didn't start in earnest until August the 1st, because that was the beginning of the financial year. Really? And it ran in the, at Vysak in the first week of March, 82, then straight to Ricard. So basically from signing off to the car running for the first time in Vysak, nine months, normal pregnancy. Wow. For a newborn. Yeah. So there you go. That's amazing. Which, you know, consider, it, consider now, you know, um, we, we, we see... Um, three-year gestation periods for yeah. racing cars, don't we, in sports car racing? And it just seems, why does it take longer now when when the world has more computer power and more wind tunnels and... and yeah. it's, it's probably because back in the day, the rule, the technical regulations for that class were maybe, I don't know, 50 pages. And now for, for, the, for, the, for the same uh, class of cars, 40 years later, it's probably 500 pages or 1,000 pages with do's and don'ts and before you've read all through that and, and made the best of, of the words that are in there you know you spend ages in, in wind tunnels and behind computers and in those days there were no computers to develop cars you know it was done on a piece of paper with a one-fifth scale wind tunnel model in, in the fixed floor wind tunnel it, it was all you know good old stuff mm. to be fair to Porsche as, as Serge was um, uh, explaining before they did have the engine already because it had been developed for the IndyCar then it got uh, shoehorned into the 936 and so the engine was pretty much ready to go wasn't it but even so I mean and, and, and also that which the, the entire success of Group C at the time was simplicity it was the cars were simple to understand for everybody for the spectators as well as for the engineers to build them like aerodynamically for instance a very simple rule which made for such beautiful cars no mechanical part could be was allowed to be seen from the, from outside the car except from the rear and from the sides, the front and the top, you could only see the brake assembly through the wheels and the exhaust sticking out of the, out of the side, if they, if they came out of the side of the car. Everything else had to be covered. So there were no double floors. I mean, nowadays, if you look at prototypes, you, you can look from the side and straight through the car to the front. I mean, there was no need for all that, you know, funky aero stuff because the rules didn't allow it. So there was no need to, to, to spend ages in wind tunnels looking for whatever, you know, inside the car and how, how airs and washes and this and that goes and, and, and turning fanes and flip-ups and tip-ups and, and God knows what else it's called. And where one millimeter makes a difference between standing on pole position or, 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 or starting 20 on a grid. And, and what Porsche stuck with what they know. So what's that air-cooled engine at the time? The, the early ones were mixed-cooled. Okay. So air-water. Air and water, yeah. And and in terms of where this car sat in ground effect, can you just? 
help us understand a little bit. Was Formula One already doing ground effect? But that was a key part of this car, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, f- ground effects have come into um, uh, Formula One 78, 79 with the Lotus uh, 78. Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm getting my numbers confused there. Ground effects came into Formula One with. With the Lotus 78 in 1977, yes. and then the Lotus 79 in, lo- in the year 1978. Well done. That's why it's, <laughs> well it's confusion. <laughs> yeah. And of course, they were using skirts. Um, Singer was developing a new car, a monocoque, crucially a monocoque, the first monocoque uh, Porsche had ever developed. They looked at ground effect. You know, their starting point was to copy Formula One, and it didn't work uh, because... You know the architecture of um, of a car, you know, a sports car with all enveloping bodies, a two seater as well, is different to a single seater. So they realised they needed to get air in the sides of the car as well. So the the idea of skirts, which were actually banned at the end of, um, were actually banned um, in, in F one already. You know, I think in, in already exactly, or yeah, yeah. yeah, at the end of eighty. So then they yeah sliding skirts were been banned at the end of uh, 80 but anyway so yeah it was a, a slightly different philosophy and also there was a uh, a certain flat bottom area of that was uh, written into the uh, group c rules so it was a different slightly different kettle of fish but they learned about this in the wind tunnel but yeah the ground effect was a a key thing and you know talking to the people who uh we're jumping from a 936 to 956 testing around Ricard. It was, oh, wow, the grip this has got. And I spoke to Derek Bell, you know, five-time Le Mans winner, as we were saying, whose career was really made by this car. And he said, you know, you got into the 956 and you'd come into the pits. You're thinking, yes, that's going okay. And they tell you your, <laughs> tell you your time and you go, was I that quick? Really? And he said, it, it, you could do it with ease in the car. Really? Yeah, ground effects were, was was the big thing then, and and the one thing that Porsche had to do or work with or around is they had the flat six architecture of the engine, which meant that they were already hampered vis-a-vis the competition, because the engine was so wide. Obviously, they they had their wind tunnel, their venturi would be narrower than those of the competition. So basically, they already started with a deficit, theoretical deficit, on the competition, but they still managed to make the best of it. And they tilted the engine up slightly. Just yeah, to, five to degrees. Help. Yeah, to have some more, uh, to have you know, bigger venturi and, and get more downforce from underneath the car. But they would have been some big gains at the beginning of this. So we talk about those those uh, those regulations being a little bit less onerous than they are these days. But they were learning learning a lot of the time. They can make big jumps. Probably quite interesting for the engineers because these days you're making these tiny little iterations yeah. but you can make really big jumps quickly well I, th- I think in those days you made big jumps in every class in, in motorsports because it was much simpler and, and, and not as technically evolved and there weren't computers of course and back in the day but the, the main the main gains were of course the, the engine which went from mixed cooled to water cooled uh, PDK a couple of years down the road which is now standard in every Porsche but that was developed in Group C um, and then obviously the fuel efficiency going efficiency going from a mechanical Google Fisher injection to a Bosch Matronic which is now also standard part and parcel of every every race car in the world electronics always a big step yeah. forward you yeah. know but that, those were like that electronics almost was in its infancy at the time and then you know whatever you gain there makes a difference and and Bosch had an excellent relationship with Bosch, who did that for them, uh, and that was basically paved the way for, for for the successes. 
The evolution of this car was quite quick in terms of the technology, like you say, but how did it launch? So we took nine months, got to shake down. What was the first race that it was? It Was it a six hour or something? It was, it was the was race it? here. Yeah. So oh, it was it, that yeah. was the first race it yeah, did? Yeah, because okay. it missed the wow. opening race of the season at Monza and wasn't ready. Right. Uh, and then it came here to Silverstone. So British fans got to see it race first. The first one, which it didn't win. No. But what was it like to drive? It was a kind of a brutal bit of a beast, wasn't it? Because it was obviously... No, uh, no I'm no. going to say no. Because Re- I'm thinking in my head, like rudimentary technology, no sequential shift. So it'd be a, a synchro mesh manual gearbox yeah. or a dog leg first down. And then... It, ah, all judge seems- it. Judge it by the standards of the time. Okay, right. So, because in my mind, I'm thinking like this sort of almost rough and ready, like grab it by the scruff of the neck. But am I wrong? Is it much more elegant than that? I think it was elegant to drive. People said it was easy to drive. But obviously, you know, in order for Autosport, we've put uh, a Carrera Cup uh, junior, who Adam Smalley in the car and he was saying, oh yeah, it it feels like, you know, the, the turbo lag, you know, it feels so... Uh, feel every bump but he you know he's judging it by today's standards by today's yeah, standards really? when it's paddle shift electronics uh, coming out of every, every orifice of every car <laughs> you know it's, it's a different it's a different we're in a different world aren't we mm. in those days drivers said if you can drive a 911 turbo on the road pretty fast you're good than a 956 really? and, and yeah. don't forget this car had a slide as standard it came with a sliding adjustable seat didn't it? Yep. So, so it was aimed so different sizes of driver could jump in and out, and it had a key. It had, it a had key. A, every every racing Porsche had a key at the time. You still had a, every other car had a push button. That car still had a key. So you literally and a genuine put key. The key in. Later on, they, they, you know, the the key was welded to the lock. But you know, in, in, in the very early days, you had a key. <laughs> so, Who's got the key? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where's it gone? Who's taking it out of the ignition again? Oh, that's amazing. I love some of these yeah. stories that you're telling us about. And Serge, when did it first win and establish its dominance? Well, the first win, of course, was the next race it did. It skipped the Nürburgring uh, 1,000 kilometers, which came after Silverstone 82. And then the next one was the big one. And it couldn't do the Nürburgring because they had to build three cars plus a spare car uh, for Le Mans. Or basically, build three cars and use the Silverstone car as a spare. And... Uh, they ran with numbers one, two, and three because right. they had won the previous year, so they were entitled to have number one. Uh, so ran number one, one, two, and three, and they finished first, second, and third in the order of the racing numbers. Really? So despite the fact that two of the cars had some issues, uh, they came home one, two, and three, and basically obliterated the competition, which was then what well, was Lancia with their Barquettas, which you know didn't compete for the manufacturer's uh, championship, um, and Ford with the C100, and that was well. Well, the full C C one hundred best, I think. <laughs> it was a it was a program that ran for several years that was always bedeviled by politics, politics and, and yeah. you know shifting and changing and yeah, it certainly didn't deliver on its potential. Well, they ran one just the eighty two season, and I think their best this started every race with two cars and then Brands Hatch with three mm-hmm. last race and that's the, that's where they finished uh, their, their best uh, had their best results uh, at the finish of fourth overall so and then the program was buried in politics again and never seen again so yeah exactly and so then I presume at some point everybody whenever there's a dominant car that has the potential to be a customer car everybody would say well, I'll have one of those then, please. But how did that happen from it being a, a works car 
to a cut? Was it was quickly? Or well, did it, it take was a few in, years or what? No, no, year two, year two. But don't yeah. forget, as, as Serge was saying, it was very much in Porsche's philosophy back then to always do customer cars. It was about selling customer racing for them was about selling cars as well as going racing with a factory. And we're seeing that again now with the new uh, 963 LMDH, which everyone has seen pictures of testing and has been launched. And we're going to see racing in WEC and in IMSA from next year. So there they are continuing the philosophy of old with this new project. So it was ingrained in the culture of Porsche in 1982 into 83 when... um, they for the second year of the program when they yeah. did the first batch. straight after Lamar they announced that we're going to do a batch of 12 privateer cars which was news because Joost and Kramer had built their own Porsche Group C cars with tube frames and with the engine of a 935 in the back and they of course immediately signed up to have one and and the uh, Kramer success- didn't actually no 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 Kramer didn't they they were planning on doing their own and they then they were like sort of wrestled into buying one because they got a deal via Porsche France and Kenwood and, and the Andrettis yes and then they managed to take over the one that Alan Decker and they had yeah. ordered but didn't have the money to pay for so that car was available so the Kramers fortunately got that one um, and the rest of history because you know and the Andrettis finished third in eighty three behind the two works that's cars. right with Philly Palio as the yeah. third driver. And of interesting little little fun fact of the first twelve cars that were sold, two were sold to Paramount Pictures to do a new Lamar movie, and John Frankenheim was going to direct that. Uh, Director that, of Grand Prix, of, of course. Grand, yeah. So and what happened to those cars? Well, the, the, those were eventually sold to other teams. Oh, okay. One to Japan, to a Japanese, uh, to Matsuda, who only raced it once in Fuji in '83 and then put it in his private collection. And one, the other one, was sold to to Brun Motorsport. Uh, but those cars have been been earmarked for Paramount Picture. Then the, the picture didn't happen. And tell the audience how that transition happened from nine five six to nine six two. So we're talking about uh, a move to IMSA in eighty four. Yeah, P. Porsche had been been trying to get the nine five six to race in in, in IMSA as well. Um, but John Bishop, who ran IMSA. Um, didn't really want to have another Porsche dominating the series. He wanted to have like, you know, constructor car, uh, chassis like Lola or March uh, or others with a good old, you know, good old technology V8 American stock block in the back. Uh, and he had just come off the IMSA GTX era where 935 had basically won everything multiple times and only 935 showed up uh, at the end of the day. So he really didn't want to have a 956 in um, in America. Also based on the safety issue with the pedals sitting in front mm. of, the, of the gearbox. And don't forget that uh, safety standards of tracks in yeah. America, probably at, at that time at, at a, a lower level, yeah. a lot of street circuits as well. And he didn't... And, and rightfully so, probably, from an American point of view, he didn't like the fuel formula. And he always said, like, we run, we run a business. We don't, we don't run a club. Right. So, uh, and he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't conceive the idea or he couldn't think that it might appeal to an American audience to have cars running a fuel economy run at the end of the races. They wanted, he wanted the cars to go as fast as they could for the whole, for the whole duration. And don't forget right. that uh, pet- petrol or gasoline was basically free in America oh, yeah. at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So the idea of a fuel formula just wouldn't have sat yeah. with the American public, like, would why it? Why would you limit that? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's unlimited. It's like water. So Exactly. So the next best thing was to, to, to build a new car to the rules because America, of course, was the biggest export market for, for the Porsche uh, cars at the time. Uh, and then the easiest thing to do was to adapt the 956 to the IMSA rules. So bring the front axle forward by 12 centimeters, 
get rid of the twin turbo uh, mixed cooled engine and put a single turbo air cooled engine in in the back and adjust the the bodywork at the rear a bit because the rear wing had to sit over the engine deck. That was another little IMSA rule. Um, and then they had their 962. Well, that's interesting because a lot of our audience are based in the UK. We're on the Autosport podcast, but we have a big US listenership as well. So how different, you know, because everyone especially people, perhaps the audience of a certain age that maybe even watch these cars in their prime. How different were the Euro cars to the US cars? Was it just that engine change with the aero tweaks or anything? It was, yeah. <laughs> it was basically the engine because that was in the rules. Yep. The engine operated with the sliding scale, so every, every configuration of engine equated to a certain base weight of the car. And and the ones that fitted Porsche best was the air-cooled engine from the 935, which they already had, which they knew, and which had been, been successful in the years before. Um, so outwardly, the cars looked almost similar. To the untrained eye, would be like, oh, this is the same car. Yeah. And then two years later, or one year later, the FIA said, well, we want to have the same safety rules in Group C as well, the feet behind the front axle. So every car that was newly built from the 1st of January 85 onwards had to have its feet behind the front axle. So for Porsche, that was, of course, easy. So we had to convert the 956 to the 962 to be uh, legal in IMSA. So they converted the 962 IMSA car into the 962C to use in Group C. Where so it basically was- took the IMSA car and put the old 956 engine in the back with the twin turbos and the water-cooled. Wow. Where it would dominate here and there as 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 well. Um, so one of the questions that we do want to ask you, Serge, is is how do you think we would remember looking back Group C and IMSA if it wasn't for this car? How would we remember that era? How important was it to even the way that racing has evolved to today? I think if Porsche had not built their customer cars if they had not had that business model, I think we would have seen Porsche run the works team for two, three years maybe. But none of the others built, none of the other manufacturers built uh, built customer cars. Ford pulled out, pulled out after one year. Lancia was strugglingly, struggling continuously with their fuel consumption. They never had got, got their fuel figures right. So I think, I think probably we would not have seen Mercedes come in. Jaguar probably, yes, but probably not Mercedes and certainly not the Japanese at the end of the 80s. Because I think Toyota, been, actually, because Toyota... They were maybe keen, too keen on winning Le Mans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Would it have become the over-factory team that it did become without the foundations that Porsche laid of the success of the championship? I think you're probably, probably right, yeah. no. But they would have been around I because think, with yeah. the Toms and the Dome operations. I think Group C probably would have died at the end of the 80s of natural I, causes it, rather than yeah. being shot to death uh, by the rules in, in at the end of 1990. No, I think you're right. I don't think it would have made the... Would it have made the late 80s? No, you know, I think it, it would have, have fallen 87 that, or so. Yeah, it wouldn't have got that far. No. You know, I think... You know. It would have had maybe like 12, 15 cars on the grid. Whereas now, in the, the very last year of Group C in 1990, at the opening race at Suzuka, you had 36 Group C1 cars. Half of them were Porsches, but all the other manufacturers were there. Aston was there, Jaguar was there. Not in 19, just... Uh, oh, no, as, as in, yeah, they've yeah. been bought by Ford again. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Ford politics again. Yeah. So out went Aston. But Jaguar was there, Mazda was there, Toyota was there, Nissan was there, Mercedes was there. You had 36 you know, top top class prototypes on the grid of a sprint race or yeah. three hour race, one of the shorter ones, not Lamar. I mean, that that's not been seen ever again, not since to have thirty six cars of the top class on the grid, like in Lamar and LMH. How many cars do we have this year? Five, six. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. 
So, and, and last year, five or six. The year before that, four. So then you had 36. Okay, obviously, half of them were Porsches. And of those Porsches, maybe three or four were in it for, for a win. And all the others were just there to, because they like racing, because they're endurance racing. Endurance racing typically is made up of you know, 75% of gentlemen races, businessmen who want to have some fun on the weekends and, and go racing. Um, here's, here's an interesting point. Back in those days, in the 80s into the 90s, there were a lot of gentlemen drivers racing Porsche 956s and 962s and racing it competently because it was a relatively yeah. easy car to drive. Drivers of that ilk today are now racing in GTE AM or perhaps in a in another sports car category in a GT car. Uh, and it's just interesting, isn't it, that the sort of yeah. balance is, is shift shifted. I guess, of course, we do get some a lot of amateurs in LMP2, but back in those days, we had amateurs in the uh, in the top class. So, is another reason why we could say this is the greatest racing car of all time is that you could drive it quickly perhaps to seven eight nine tenths you know even if you weren't the best yeah, driver absolutely but the, the machine would would allow would you allow you yeah, to do exactly that. and the smart guys like like a walter brun for instance he was good he was very good for being a gentleman driver but he was smart enough to bring in a professional alongside him brought in oscar larari and and so did many teams you know they, they knew their own limits they had the money, but they also knew I have the money. I'm here because I have the money, not because I'm a top, world's top driver, but I also have the money to bring in the good drivers. So basically the good drivers could, could make up whatever time they might have, might, the gentleman driver might lose on the track and they'd still be in it for a win. And they did. Walter Brunn won, or his team at least, won the world championship in 86. In 85, from 85 on, it was no longer a manufacturer's championship because Porsche had won it three or four years on the trot. And the FIA thought, well, it's getting boring. <laughs> so we'll call it the team's uh, world championship. So then it was no longer Porsche will win, but it was like which Porsche will win. And, and Brunn beat all the factory teams. And don't forget at Le Mans in 1990, you know, when the uh, 962 was pretty much in its dotage, he should have, Walter Brunn, you know, who would have been, if he wasn't 50 at that point he was knocking on the door he should have he's still 50 today I, just saw, <laughs> I saw a picture of him the other day he still looks 50 no, it's, it's only his hair that's 50 the okay. rest of him is a lot and older the <laughs> but um you know they should have he they should have finished second Walter Brun with his own car yeah. co-driven with Jesus Perea a professional but a you know not a not a top liner and the third driver, the good driver, was Oscar Larari, as Serge mentioned. But he'd had a big shunt in one of the support races on uh, Saturday, Saturday morning, morning yeah. and he didn't drive that much. So basically, it was Brun and, and Perea yeah. keeping it in second place between the two Jaguars, and that was yeah. And that sort of just, I think that shows you something about the tells you something about the car that and what you could do with it. Yeah, you could exactly. do two stints in a row and come out and not yeah. be destroyed yeah, as a driver. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the sweat you hadn't sweated enough that the, your hair uh, yeah. coloring was running. <laughs> not the Walter's hair. Yeah. yeah. Use good hair color. <laughs> well, I'm I'm loving learning about the you know the importance of, of this car. But what about if someone posed the question nine one seven versus nine five six nine six two? Where would you sit on that debate on the greatest? I think nine. I think well, definitely the greatest is nine five six nine six two. The nine seventeen is maybe more of the legend, but I think part of the legend is made because of what the car represented, what it was back in seventy and seventy one. Uh, in sports car racing, and also the Steve McQueen movie, of course, which was, from a movie perspective, probably a dud back in the day, but it's now absolute cult. 
So and that and and plus also the Gulf colors. And I think Gulf at the time was probably one of the first ones to have merchandising in those colors, and and it became an iconic car because it won everything. And then they changed the rules because the cars won everything. So it was too good to continue existing. And that part of b- b- helped build that legend. And also because there was nothing coming afterwards, after from from seventy one when when the nine seventeen was banned from the world championship until Group C happened, there was really nothing. It, w- it was just like the I desert. Think, I think mm. it's a bit of rose tinted spectacles with the nine seventeen. Okay, uh, you know I might get death threats for <laughs> saying that. You know, it, it, as, as Serge I'll says, the car, <laughs> the car was was too good. It got legislated out of existence in a world championship context. Obviously, it had a second life. In, in, in Canaan, without a, without a roof, but I think you know people. It was cut down in its prime, if you like, and people hark back to it and saying, "Oh, wasn't it amazing?" It's a bit like Canaan in itself, actually. You know, people say, "Oh, you know, uh, the McLaren M8s, the the 917 10, the 917 30s, great." But the racing wasn't particularly good in that era. Yeah. Uh, but just yeah. But people sort of some, when cars get cut down in their prime, yeah, exactly, it, it, it adds to the uh, the mystique, doesn't it? Because in those days, the nine seventeen in its class, you had it was a bit like like these days. You had like five six cars in, in that top class, and the rest were like you know minor prototypes and GTs. Mm. So the racing was probably not the greatest, but the car was fabulous. It looked good. And and of course there was this movie which everybody I mean Steve McQueen was he was the Brad Pitt meets Leonardo DiCaprio of his, of of his day, so that was absolute you know a legend builder that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the greatest car is definitely nine just from statistics point of view it's nine five six nine six two. Okay, coming up on the podcast soon, Gary will talk to we'll talk customer cars and John Fitzpatrick, a very famous uh, name in the history of this car, coming up soon on the podcast. Now though, I want to get my head around works versus customer cars. Nine six twos. What was the split in terms of the works cars versus how many customer cars were out there? Works cars in total have been nineteen built if you count the three Dower GT cars that ran in ninety four. So there's 19 of those, and there's about 170 uh, customer cars. So a huge difference between the customer cars and well, the that, works cars. That, just yeah. to clarify, that includes all the sort of, I wouldn't want to call them knockoffs. No, but, but that includes teams the did their of, own thing. Yeah, and, yeah. The yeah. Tom, you know, John Thompson, TC Prototypes, uh, one of the first people to start building, or the first, I'd yeah, say, to build uh, a non-Porsche 956. He did it for Richard Lloyd, the famous uh, British car. British uh, privateer with the Canon yeah. Cannon mm. ca- car. Mm. That's right. And there, you know, all manner of people did did their own tubs. So, um, yeah, so there is a distinction to be made there. Right, okay. But some very famous liveries we could mention. And so even more impressive, I think, Gary, is that you found us a guest who is not only writing one book, but three, but just about the works cars. I mean, talk about a depth of knowledge that Serge yeah. has. You really want to get your, you know, your friend here on to, to talk about these cars. I, I've known Serge for more than 30 years, so that's uh, more than half my life. And in, <laughs> and in that time, he, he has always been writing a book about the Porsche 956, 962. Works cars. No, oh, okay. we refer to it for probably 25 uh, of those years as the book the book as of this evening it will have turned into five books or five volumes oh. so Serge uh, in 2019 yep. the uh, the the book on the works 956s was published so that's two volumes uh, tonight 
we'll see the 962 works cars, which is three volumes and a thousand pages. 1,400. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> and, and for those who hate reading, there's also 1,800 pictures in there. Wow. So, and then the book... The book. The, the project, I guess, will continue with the customer cars. Eventually, yeah. Uh, but but I've been slaving away on these books now for, for the last three or four years at the rate of four or five hours a day, every day, uh, apart from the day job. Um, so I I'm, I'm, I'm probably might take a few weeks off from writing after yeah, the book right. is launched tonight. But uh, yeah, eventually there will be this uh, similar thing on, on the privateer cars. Which then, of course, if, if, if you use the same mathematics, if you need 1,400 pages for 19 cars, roughly 80, 80 pages per car, and there's 170 uh, privateer cars, you can do the math, you know? Wow. It'll be a, it will be a multi-volume <laughs> nerdy book, but uh, has fun it, doing. Has your son shown uh, any interest in Porsche racing cars? Because I think you yeah. might be too old to uh, finish that project. I'm only 25. <laughs> <laughs> No, he only he's he's into F one very much. So uh, he's well, he's excused for that. <laughs> Everybody has his flaws. Can we just talk a little bit about the Dower cars? Yeah, because absolutely. you know, basically the sort of frontline career of uh, the nine six two really ended ninety. Really, I would say. Well, 19. even before that, you had yeah. like the nineteen eighty nine Dijon win, which was the thirty ninth and final uh, world championship win, and that was basically a well, not a lucky win. The cars were good. The team was, it was good. A tire the tire wasn't it? It was a tire win. The Yost car ran Goodyear tires, and the Goodyear tires on that very very hot day in Burgundy, France, were better than the Michelin tires the Mercedes were on. So they won it. On, on, on any, any other day or in different weather circumstances, it wouldn't have won. But uh, yeah, after mm. that, it was mm. like it was so basically. Done. But it was still, you know, the world championship finished at the end of '92. Uh, but it was still, you know, every year at Le Mans there were still nine six twos there, still racing in Interseri. Uh, the last IMSA win was '93 with the Yerst car. '93, yeah. Lake, yeah. Uh, so it was still there on the scene, but it, you know, it wasn't. It needed a very good day to be at yeah. the front. Okay. So all of a sudden, Porsche announced early in 1994 that they're going to Le Mans with a car called the Dower 962LM Porsche right. uh, to race in the GT class. And they went there and again, to, win, yeah. to and win the GT class. That was why they went. But they ended up winning overall. And it was all based on a bit of dud information. So Singer went to a meeting with the R&D boss, Horst, Horst Markhart, yes. and he says, oh, I hear McLaren are coming to Le Mans next year. Uh, can we beat them? And when he says McLaren, he means McLaren with the F1, you know, a carbon tub with a BMW V12, 6.1 litre or 6.3 litre, uh, you know, just the architecture of a racing car, even a central seat. So he asked Norbert Singer, can you beat it with the update of the 911 based car that you ran in 93? Uh, and Singer goes, no, no. <laughs> of course not. So, so Markart mm. goes, well, you better come up with a plan B then. And it was basically the same thing that happened in 81 when the bosses asked, can we win Lamar? No, not really. Now he asked, now Mark had asked, can we win Lamar? Obviously in the class. Yeah. No, we can't. No, we can't. And so, again, it was the same person, Norbert Zinger, 12 years later, who had the bright idea. Hey, Jochen Dauer launched a, uh, a, a road-legalized uh, 962 at the uh, Frankfurt Motor Show in September 93. Let's have a chat with him. And of course, wow. Dauer had been knocking on Porsche's door 
uh, asking for help with road homologation of the car. Porsche weren't very happy until they saw sniffed this opportunity. Um, and they went to him, a deal was done, you know, the car became a reality again in a very short space of time. They went to Le Mans to win GT, they ended up winning overall, and there were no McLarens on the grid. You know, if they'd have asked me at the time, I could have told them there wouldn't have been any <laughs> yeah. McLarens on the grid. The McLaren came a year later, right? but I don't think there, there was never an intention for McLaren to have an F1 racing at Le Mans in uh, 1994. In fact, even when McLaren launched the F1 GTR for the 1995 season, really for the Global Endurance GT Series, they initially said, no we're not, more. no Le Mans. Yeah. But the reason they went, they, they helped their customers go to Le Mans, did a, a, a Le Mans kit and an, a small endurance testing program, is because they knew their, their customers want, would want to well, go yeah. to Le Mans and they wanted to make sure they didn't go there and make uh, fools of themselves. So they did that little bit to help them. So, yeah, so going back to Markart's uh, duff rumour, yeah, it, it was, yeah, yeah. That, that sort of gave this, gave this iconic car and it was one again, last victory. The last yeah. hurrah. And it was, again, think, clever thinking by Norbert Zinger and his crew to turn a race car into a GT car, homologate, and then turn the GT car back into a race car. Wow. Although it wasn't easy, of course, because it had to have a flat bottom and narrow mm. wheels and, and less wing, less aero, lots of uh, engine restrictions, yeah. but, you know... At the end of the day, there they were. It was quite a different car, actually, it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Undoubtedly. It, you, you could see where it come from. Basically, the top was the same, and the, en- the basic architecture of the engine was the same. Everything else was tweaked and fine-tuned to it. Yeah. Well, to first to adapt to to to, to be uh, eligible for road homologation, and then secondly to be eligible for the rules that that were run at Le Mans mm. that year. And don't don't forget, you know, with, with ride height rules, it was you know higher in the air, so the geometry would have been different. You know, the bodywork was different by look, but also by regulation. So yeah, there was a hell of a lot of work, which again they did in this in double quick time. Yeah, but at, at the at the heart of it, it was still a good old 960. Yeah. There were actually three, the, the cars they ran in Le Mans were three spare monocoques they still had sitting in the storage room that they hadn't sold uh, to customers that hadn't been used to replace existing cars in accidents. They were just still sitting there. So they thought, well, hmm, we'll use those and build ourselves a, a threesome of dowers and go to Le Mans. That's just an amazing kind of version of history repeating itself. Yeah. Uh, story with Porsche and the customer car story is a very important one with this car as well and earlier today Gary caught up uh, with John Fitzpatrick and a very famous customer of Porsche and driver as well and began by asking why did he get himself a Porsche 956? I'd been racing the 935 in America and IMSA and I'd actually I'd won IMSA in a 935 and I was living in San Diego and uh, I was approached by a gentleman in San Diego, uh, uh, David Dominelli, his name was, it probably rings a bell with you. Yes. Yeah. And he was a, a Porsche enthusiast, a motor racing enthusiast, and uh, he gave me a call one day, found out how to get hold of me and said, uh, told me who he was. He said, do you want to come and see me? I said, yeah, sure, I'll come and see you. So I went to see him. And he said, uh, what are you planning next year? I said, well, the Porsche are coming out with a, a new car, the 956, I said, we can't really race it in America except uh, possibly the Can-Am. Uh, I said, but it won't, probably won't be a winner there. I said, but, uh, and uh, I, I want to go and race in Europe. And he said, and uh, have you got a sponsor? I said, uh, not at the moment, I'm looking. He said, well, what's that going to cost? 
I said, you mean to race the whole season in Europe? So I came out with some ridiculous figure and off the top of my head at that stage, to be honest, yeah. And he sort of went, hmm, let's do it, John. Let's do it. And I thought, is this, is this real? Am I having a dream? And, uh, uh, but no, I mean, he was, uh, he was absolutely serious. He was a Porsche enthusiast, a racing enthusiast. And uh, he said, uh, have you ordered the car? I said, uh, I've told him I want one. I said, but I've got to send a pretty hefty deposit, you know, to, to get on the list. Uh, and I said, I could be number two on the list. Kramer's number one on the list. He said, how much deposit do you need? I said, oh, they need 100 grand. And he, and he took out a checkbook, wrote a check for 100 grand. He said, here, order the car, come back and see me, you know, and, and that was it. And that just led on to the whole J. David thing, the 956s, everything. You got the car, uh, and I'm told when you collected them, it, it was in a great underground bunker in Zuffenhausen. Do you remember that? And, and were you impressed with the car you got? Uh, uh, well, uh, yeah, I was impressed. Obviously, I was impressed. I mean, it was a sensational-looking machine. The workmanship was incredible. You know, typical Porsche. They thought of everything. And I'm not sure about the underground bunker. Oh, OK. Richard Lloyd told me that story when yeah, he well, collected it. Yeah, perhaps they'd been hiding his car or something. I He's, don't know. He told me his car was covered in dust when he collected oh, really? it. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I was there. Mine was fresh off being being built. I was I was right there. In fact, uh, Kramer had uh, chassis number one. Which actually was Alan de Cadenet's order, but he he ran out of money. You're right. And uh, Kramer bought it off him because they didn't actually have an order, but then they got a deal with Porsche France, who wanted to run the Andrettis, Mario and Michael, who famously finished third that year, which is quite an interesting tale in itself. Yeah, I remember all that now. That's coming back to me. But uh, I think I was the first customer to take delivery of the car and we uh, we shipped it to, to Silverstone I opened a workshop at Silverstone uh, sort of did a few little test drives the mechanics got used to it mm-hmm. and then uh, basically it was for the European season mm-hmm. uh, but then we had the idea that uh, in fact Can-Am approached us oh, yeah, SCC, how it worked. Oh, okay. the SCCA approached us they, their entries were a bit thin and they said, how'd you like to bring the car over here for us? So I spoke to our sponsor in San Diego, uh, Jerry Dominelli, Jay David, mm-hmm. and uh, he was all for that. And that's how we got to do the Can-Am race. And, and we did two, I think we did two Can-Am races. Yes, right, races. you did Elkhart Lake, Road America, and Mossport, and you won Elkhart Lake, beating uh, Jacques Villeneuve Sr., so that's Gilles' brother, uh, Jacques Jr.'s uncle. Yeah. Do, do you remember anything about that race? I think the margin was sort of 12 or so seconds, so relatively tight. Uh, I don't remember if I was on pole or not, but I do remember just leading straight away and pulling away, and the car was just... It, it sounds crazy, but it was in a different class to a Can-Am car. I mean, it was so much quicker on the straight, which was amazing. Uh and, uh, I mean, everybody was amazed. I was amazed. I was thrilled to death. I don't think Villeneuve was too thrilled about it. <laughs> but, uh, and then we, they asked us if we'd do another one. Actually, Elkhart Lake was good because there was a long straight. Right, yeah. 
yeah. and we were quite a lot quicker on the straight. Mm-hmm. Then we went to Mossport, which is, as you probably know, is quite twisty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we finished second or third. Well, there. I've got you. I looked it up this morning, and it, and it was third. Yeah, third. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had a couple of Can-Am cars in front of us. And don't forget those cars. Can-Am of that era wasn't, you know, not. We're not talking about Can-Am Mark One. Just sort of for for uh, listeners who. Uh, who aren't of that era, you know, we're not talking about McLaren M8s. We're talking effectively Formula 5000 cars with all enveloping body. Oh, they were serious cars, yeah. yeah they were. So, so they were single-seaters yes, exactly. up against your, yeah. your sports car. Yeah, they were know. central seats, weren't they? That's the, right. That's yes. right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, but they didn't like it. No, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> they <No>. didn't. <laughs> As they say, they don't like it up and Mr. Mannering. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So anyway, the race I really want to talk about is I wasn't at Elkhart Lake, funny enough, but as a 16 year old at Brands Hatch that year, the thousand kilometres, a round of the European Endurance Championship, not of a world championship, the world championship, which you were also doing. But there's one of these anomalies of sports car racing uh, that have perhaps blighted that sport. But anyway, you went to Brands with your J. David car. You were sharing with Derek Warwick. And you beat the two factory Rothmans cars. A brilliant day. I mean, that must have been a, um, yeah, just just a great victory for, for you, but also for you as a team, for you as a driver, but yeah, for you I, as a team owner. I think that was our greatest day, really, to be, mm. and probably my proudest day in a way. I mean, I, you know, I won a few championships and things, but that really was to beat the Rothmans cars. And the great thing about, I'll talk about it a little bit more, but the great thing about that was that we won fair and square. I mean, to be fair, it was uh, part of the race was wet mm-hmm. and we had Goodyear tyres, which w- were better than the Dunlops. Uh, I had Derek Warwick with me. I'd seen Derek drive the Kramer car and uh, David couldn't do the race. David had to do a Trans Am race. David, David Hobbs. Hobbs, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was with me most of that year, but he was also had a Trans Am contract. Mm-hmm. So he, he had to do Trans Am. So uh, I'd seen Derek drive the Kramer car, so I got in touch with Derek and, and he drove. And uh, Derek, he was sensational in the car. He really was. And he, uh, in fact, he always says to me that that race that he and I won together got him into his Formula One drive. Right. He, well, of course, he was at Tolman that year, but I think it... You know, that was at a time when he's... established uh, him, didn't it's, it? It helped establish him. And, of course, yeah. it, it, it got his feet in the sports car camp and he obviously yeah. went on to be, have a very, successful, yeah, sort of very thing, successful sports car career. Yeah. And that, you know, forget what he'd done with Kramer. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the sort of... Yeah. That was the sort of the time he it put really the flag was. in the yeah. sand, isn't and, it? And to be fair, you, you know, you wouldn't meet a nicer guy anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he, he was terrific in the car and... and uh, he always said to me that, uh, you know, that really established him winning that race, which was nice to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. There was also a little aero tweak on the car that I've read about. Do, do you remember that? I do, uh, because the uh, basically the engines were partly air-cooled, and I think the heads were water-cooled. That's correct, yes. Yes, and the, the cylinders, uh, cylinder block was air-cooled. Uh, and uh, to to facilitate that, it had louvers in the underbody. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, the, we have the tunnels under the car yes. for downforce, but it did have louvers in there. And to get a, extract a bit of air from exactly, the engine bay. Exactly, from the engine mm-hmm. bay. And uh, for qualifying, we had little plates to put on them mm-hmm. so that you could do two or three laps uh, and not bother, n- yes. not worry about overheating the engine just mm-hmm. for qualifying. Mm-hmm. And it made a difference of probably second and a half a lap. It was, uh-huh. it was worth having. Right. And my fellows, my mechanics... Do you remember Max Crawford? Of course I remember Max Crawford. Yeah, Max Crawford, great guy, super guy, super guy. And uh, he'd worked out that uh, a way of getting more air into the engine mm-hmm. uh, and we could block off the tunnels then, get more downforce, we got more air coming in somewhere else so we could actually run it in the race, mm-hmm. which we did. Do you think, you know, Brands a high downforce circuit? Yeah. Oh. Brands Grand Prix circuit, a wonderful circuit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that could have been quite crucial in the victory, do you think? No, no, it was definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Derek, who was incredible in the car. I mean, he was, I mean, I don't remember the exact figures now, but uh, I was always a little bit quicker than Hobbo. I was always sort of, you know, half a second to a second, something like that with mm-hmm. Hobbo. Because I was doing more in the car than Hobbo was. Mm-hmm. You know, and Your I, car. I'm, I'm not saying I'm as quicker than Hobbo, but it was my car. I knew it. And I think Derek was, I, th- I think he was a good second a lap quicker than I was. Oh, right. Okay. Which, as you know yourself, is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he was, uh, Derek, I mean, we wouldn't have won the race without Derek, that's mm-hmm. for sure. We might have come second or third, but we wouldn't have won the right, race okay. without Derek. So. And uh, as I say, Derek always said he really established him, you know, which mm-hmm. was nice. So, well, that's some great tales there of uh, a, a great period and a great car. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and for me, quite a, uh, well, just a victory I remember very well because it was sort of in that formative uh, period of my life when I was falling in love with sports car racing. Yeah. So, John, thank you for coming and telling us these wonderful tales. Thank oh, you. It's been a pleasure. Always like to talk about it. <laughs> so, Gary, that was you speaking to John earlier. What did you make of, of catching up with John now? Well, he, I mean, I would say my impression, I sat here the other side of the desk listening in, sprightly, I would say. And I hate to think of his, his age, but, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. He, he bounded in here with his BRDC top on and mm-hmm. sat down and happily chatted all things Porsche to you. No, it was good to speak to him and good to speak to him about, um, particularly about his victory in 1983 at, at Brands Hatch with Derek Warwick, a day uh, a, a privateer team based here at Silverstone beat, beat the factories uh, as he explained with a little help from Goodyear tyres a little help from uh, an aero tweak that the uh, team came up with and I think a, a big help from Derek Warwick's talents and we, talk, we talked earlier about drivers uh, you know who came from other disciplines who may who made their mark in uh, 956s and 962s you know Warwick you know that was his first big sports car win and he went on to have a very successful sports car career as well as of course having a a, a good uh, F1 career but you know he um you know he became a you know, he became a top liner in in sports car racing, which was not quite the case in um, <laughs> in Formula One. Yeah, absolutely, yep. and became a world champion, of course, as well. Let's let's talk a few favourites because uh, John mentioned a couple of his uh, sort of favourite moments and drivers in that that clip we just heard. Um, Serge, you know, I'd say you've written the book, you've written the five books 
on this. You can't do that without having a few favourite moments, drivers, events, things like that. I, you know, I, I got here really early doors this morning, um, and they had the fuel bowsers out, and they were popping some fuel in a car, and I looked on the side, it had Nidel on the side of it, and that reminded me that all sorts of people have driven I was like oh my goodness Tiff Nadell of course I totally slipped slipped my mind that was kind of the era that I was getting into to, to motorsport um, as you've gone through this this labour of love what have been your favourite drivers to see racing these cars well I've been researching quite a few drivers of course and I think in total there's like 445 drivers that drove ever drove a 956 or a 962 in their careers so obviously there, there are the classic names, if you like, Derek Bell, Hans Stuck, Jackie X, obviously, uh, the, the, the multi-winners in, in, in factory cars. But there's also the, the, the nice people who may have been not as successful, but were just good, solid drivers or nice drivers or nice people. There were also people that, uh, like, like uh, what's his name again, uh, the Peruvian who showed up here in the, in the Fitzpatrick Porsche in, in Silverstone. Is that Lopez who crashed? Oh, Lopez, yeah, Lopez, who crashed. To his, his, exiting the pits, I do believe. Ex- ex- exiting the pits on his first stint, floored it, went straight across the track and then totaled the car into the crash barriers. And he was then later arrested for drug trafficking together with his brother and a few other people. So there's, there's also those dodgy characters, I mean, which you, which you always have in, in, in endurance racing, always have had there's people from all walks of life who, who go endurance racing because it, it's such a you know it, it the discipline itself three three people per car and like 40 50 cars on the grid you need 150 people to man all the cars to 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 go racing and you can't find 150 professionals um to go sports car racing. you always have these 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 people and you need uh, people to pay for it of course exactly so you yeah. need whether their money's drivers. clean <laughs> dirty or otherwise it's all yeah. money right it's all sponsorship Ex- or as long as the bills are green you know the deal is done wow and 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 i'm trying to think of questions that would possibly stump someone who's written for four or five hours a day for the last however many years who's which driver has driven the most miles in a in one of these i've got absolutely no nah. idea <laughs> but it would have to be a factory driver yeah, with definitely. the testing probably now Derek you, bell or yeah. Je- but probably Derek bell or hans stuck because they did they, they drove for the factory for that program so at the, the, the longest track they yeah. were on the shakedowns no, and the, but don't forget roland kusmael who was who was like also a driver uh, but a racing engineer basically but he did like thousands and thousands yeah. of mile testing miles around uh, really? around twice and Jürgen Bart probably did and Jürgen Bart shook down yeah. every customer car as well at the track and it was always because they were they were obviously Porsche employees so if some, uh, something needed testing you know they were there right they didn't quickly, have to be they were there. they yeah. just had to you know get out of their office hop in the car and, and, and drive around the track mm. a bit but Serge you haven't given us your favourite moment you know oh, wherever you were there my favourite moment yeah. My favourite. It could be the most significant moment, but for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a moment, and I was there moment. Well, okay. I think okay. there's this like two moments really. Um, Dijon '89 when Porsche won, and that really made Bob Wallach's day. Uh, he really liked that, um, and it was a very popular win, and that basically revived the program because the program had been shelved at the end of '87 or after Le Mans '87. Came back for an encore in Le Mans '88, and then was done. And then some behind the scenes, some development still happened at Yost. They won again. And then at Porsche, the, the suit said, like, we should really go racing again. And from 1990, they built up a proper works team again, run by Yost, but it was definitely the works team, and tried to come back. Uh, there had been a way to do the IndyCar program, which netted, I think, one win in three years. Was That's basically, right, yeah. you know, not good. Uh, so that was, so Dijon 89 would stick out. Um, and Le Mans 1990 as well, when, when Bruin and Perea 
lost the second place 15 minutes from the finish when the engine went. Uh, so that was and Pereira collapsed into the arms of his crew down at the old signalling pits at Mosan Corner. Yeah. It was, it, I remember looking at it at the big screens, and it and it hit me in the guts. Do you uh, know what I mean? Minutes from the end, uh, yeah, and I, th- and I think most journalists were already done with their race reports and everything because normally in the last uh, uh, fifteen uh, uh, minutes, nothing really happens. Not well, in those days. Anyway. Not in those days. <laughs> Nowadays, of course, anything can still happen yeah. on the last lap. But uh, uh, you know, in those days, you know, it, w- it was. Yeah, it was it's dramatic, really. Mm-hmm. And that, actually, that probably brings me on to, a, uh, again, another question that I should have got to earlier about the gr- why this is the greatest. And that I should have asked you already about reliability, uh, the durability well, yeah. of these cars. We don't need to discuss that because it's a Porsche. So it just keeps well, on going. Well, there's your answer. And also, well, what made it attractive <laughs> for, for, for gentlemen or for amateur drivers is that Porsche at every racetrack had its customer support team. They had like a couple of trucks with spare parts, with engineers, with mechanics. If you had a problem, there were the, the right people were there to solve the problem for you. If you, really? if you couldn't do it yourself, so they had their own. They had, you know, they had their, their warehouse almost at the track. If you blew an engine, you needed spare parts. They had them. If you didn't have them in your own uh, spare parts box, so you, you could go to Porsche customer service and they would have it for you. You so didn't you, need to really? make that big investment exactly. in spare parts. So some random fuel pipe that. Yeah, uh, if you didn't have it, have a spare. Uh, widget X FB two. <laughs> They Porsche would have it in the truck. Yeah, then you went to the Porsche truck. It's, it's, and it's, it's basically, it's part of their business model. They still do that today with 911s. There's always a couple of Porsche motorsport trucks in the paddock. And whenever an engine, you know, a, a customer team needs a part or needs an engineer or needs some information or some, 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 you know, some extra brains to think on, of a certain problem, Porsche has the people ready for their customers. And that's why they've been so successful for so many years at so many levels and so many series with so many cars and, and happy customers. What's your moment, your well, story? it's going to be another Brands Hatch moment, not the year uh, I was talking to Fitz about. Uh, one year before and the final race of the uh, 1982 uh, WEC, World Endurance Championship, Jackie X is chasing down Teo Farby in the rain at Brands Hatch for the title. Well, actually not in the rain on a drying track okay. it, the rain had been the race had been stopped because of the rain uh, it became a two-part race all became slightly confusing because a two-part race meant it was an aggregate race Jackie X didn't catch the lance here of Teo Farby but he got close enough so that on aggregate he won the race by a handful of seconds and he won the inaugural Group C Drivers' Championship. And it, it, it's just one of those days that's stuck in my mind, I think, because of the weather, uh, because of the two uh, Ford C100s cars we were talking about earlier, leading the early going and then colliding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Finishing the, the programme in style. Yeah. The race uh, being uh, stopped. And I also, I also remember some glorious sort of post-rain sun and I, it's just, you know, I would have been, so 1982, so I was uh, 15 at the time. I've just got very strong memories, but I've got very strong memories of uh, Ix chasing down the Lance here and, and, and doing the job, even though probably a lot of people hadn't realised. I'm not going to claim that I definitely knew at the time that, it, that he'd done it, but I, I, I couldn't tell you that because it is a long time ago. <laughs> but also, looking back on it, I, I realised I was privileged to see Ix putting in uh, an amazing performance at uh, one of the circuits that he uh, 
you know, was renowned for performing at. You know, he won the race of the champions in, in what m- many people regard as his greatest drive in a Lotus 72 uh, a few years bef- before that, in the mid-70s. So, uh, And he was a good peddler in the rain, of course. Yeah, well, you know, he was, yeah, yeah he was renowned for it. He was Belgium, so uh, a lot of Belgians <laughs> are good at that. It's a bit li- wet sometimes it, there. Yeah. He likes his frites. Yeah. So, so, that, that, so that's my, that's my favourite memory. And I guess these cars, because of ground effect, you don't want to slow down. So when the rain comes, those races where it gets wet, you've got to go quick or you're going to lose downforce. And so you see some brave performances from yeah, those, yeah, yeah. those some, drivers. There were some drivers who were better than others, of course, but like like Stuck was also phenomenal in the wet in the Group C car. Mm. There's very few people that could power slide out of a fast corner like, like Hans Stuck yeah, could. Yeah. That was always you know, really fun to watch. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Before we go, before we go, because I think we've, we've already made clear to the audience, you know, we are recording this uh, at Silverstone at the Classic, and uh, also happening this weekend is the Belgian Grand Prix, so we can't disguise the... T- I think this podcast will go a couple of weeks later than when we actually, actually record it. Uh, but uh, our two... Uh, title contenders well I think Max has won it this year but they're both starting from the back of the grid with engine penalties which brings me to our last question sometimes things cars drivers don't get appreciated because when they're that good they dominate so we talked about how this car began with domination but are there examples that we can point to in this where it overcome or maybe it broke down and had to get back to the pits um, and and then kind of came back through the field, kind of fighting adversity, because that is also where you can make the case of being the greatest driver or car, because then people, you know, people look at the Schumacher era or the Hamilton era in Formula 1 and go, well, were they really that good? They had the best machinery, but in terms of this machinery, were there times when it had to fight back through the grid and, and prove itself and do some overtaking? As a, Well, definitely. I, th- I think first and foremost, they had to beat all the other Porsches because you know the, the factory team always sold the, la- the latest factory car to the customers it, was, it didn't get like a lower spec or anything it was the identical car at, the, at its latest spec which was sold at least at the start of the season yeah. okay so right. maybe then, then the factory cars would be evolving through that season but that was part of their natural development yeah. and then those those developments would become available um, to the privateer at least by the very latest at the start the, of the following yeah. season okay. and then you had of course the private the real the good privateer teams like Brun Motorsport who could afford to have like really good drivers in one car the so one year he ran Stefan Belloff and Thierry Bootsen in the same car and those were two like young Formula 1 up and coming F1 drivers really really fast so they were definitely on par with the works drivers so definitely so Isn't you talk about sort of comebacks and things like that uh Derek Bell and uh, Jackie X finished second uh, at Le Mans in 83 um, to the sister car. Mm. Uh, they had all sorts of problems throughout that race, uh, including Jackie X being punted off uh, on the first lap by Jan Lammers, by Jan Lammers. I, do, I do believe. Yeah. They hauled it back onto the lead lap. Then they had another issue and Derek had to stop. It was an electrical issue. Yeah. I be- he had to then manhandle the tail off the car in contact with the with the pits via the radio and you know he had to change something I don't know exactly what he did manhandled the tail back on <laughs> got back in the car drove it back they did a proper fix they hauled it back onto the lead lap again uh, and then they needed new brakes but they decided or Derek made a call that they wouldn't he would just continue and just mm. push on without going uh 
changing the the brakes and they've came very close to catching the winning car that was in the process of uh, blowing its engine or really essentially had blown its engine. That seized already on on the penultimate lap. So, so, you know, you could fix it. Derek had to haul the tail off the car, you know, and and, and it, you know, there's a a lot incorporated the rear wing, of course. So it's a lot of, a lot of, well, a lot of weight. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. Well, uh, I, have another, I have a little fun fact for on, you, which, which I discovered while researching the book. The driver, the very first Group C race in 82 was won by Henri Pescarolo and Giorgio Francia in the Rondo Ford privateer construction uh, in 82. And Francia, the Italian driver, ex-Alfa Romeo F1 test That's driver, right. I think, yeah, yeah. He, was the, he won, he finished first in the very first Group C race in 82 and he finished last in the very last group series in 1990 driving the Alba <laughs> did he really yeah. isn't that that's a great he probably step. doesn't know that himself but, yeah you know, no. that- well it's incredible to have both of you on the podcast today thank you so much for joining us and Serge thank you for uh, making time on a busy weekend so book, so book launch for it's tonight at the museum sounds like the kind of book that somebody would take away and you know, book themselves on a just a bit of quiet time and, and sit down with it. And this is their passion. This is your passion as yeah. well. Yeah, but it'd have to. They wouldn't be able to fly because it would. Uh, you'd yeah, it would be too heavy for hand luggage. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that. And on that bombshell, we should end the podcast there. Uh, thank you, Gary. Thank you for joining us. Uh, that has been a fascinating one today. It's been it? brilliant. And thank you, Serge, for making the most time. welcome for having me. That's brilliant. <laughs> thank you very much for listening uh, to the Autosport podcast, and we will see you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.